Good morning. My name is Paul. I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. First of all, I want to thank the committee for inviting me. The only complaint I have is you invited me too far in advance, and I didn't get a chance to get nervous until just the last couple of days and then this morning. But I am very glad to be here. I've always wanted to come to Greenville. I've lived in, we, we moved to Ashland a little over 17 years ago, and I thought, I'd like to go there and spend the night sometime. Never had a chance to, and then here I am. But uh, I really do appreciate it. There's a, you know, I don't know why I got in the fellowship, you know, why God had in his plan for me. But there's two premises that I have learned throughout my program that God has never given me anything that I couldn't handle. He doesn't give me more than I can handle. And also, he has let me remember things when I can handle them. And as I tell you my story and about me, you'll see what I mean. When I went to my, when I went into Al-Anon, I had these women saying that they were, and it was women, it was just me and all these women, and they kept saying how grateful they were to be married to an alcoholic. And I'm thinking, heck, I'm not so grateful. Do you want another one? I'll give you mine. Nobody wanted to take her, so I, I, I stayed with her. Uh, I talked to my sponsor, and she repeated to me what I needed to do today was to talk from the heart and just tell you what it was like for me before the program and what it has been since I got in the program. Uh, I'm from Louisiana. I'm a Lebanese Cajun, and how, how that happened, uh, you know, if you're trying to figure it out, uh, it may be a little difficult. I've got some craziness in my life even before I married my alcoholic. Uh, my dad's Lebanese, my mom is from New York, she's Syrian, and they met in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska during World War II. And my dad was the oldest of his family, and I'm the oldest of all the grandchildren. I was named after my grandfather, my middle name was Khalil, and it means Charles. So I don't use it very often because people can't pronounce it or they don't know what it means. But I'm the oldest of five children. Uh, Another, I have a, a sister after me who lives in Louisiana, a brother, Michael, that's still down there, a sister, Regina, that lives in California, and then my baby sister, Kathy, still living down in Louisiana, also with my mom. Well, I was raised in a very Catholic area. My area of Louisiana is southwest Louisiana, where the Cajuns live, and we're about 95% Catholic. So I grew up in the Catholic environment, thinking of a God that had a big book, bigger than I could ever imagine. And if I sneezed the wrong way, or if I didn't do something right, my name was in there. And as I, as I got older, I figured I must have had a page all to myself with everything that I figured I was doing wrong. My mother was the main parent. She was a very strict person. She was a disciplinarian. My father worked an awful lot. He was a workaholic. And as I tell you my story, you see where I inherited it quite a bit because I'm kind of a workaholic at times too. And so I was expected to be kind of the lead for my brothers and sisters. I said my mother was very strict. She believed in the belt. Not much talking. But it seemed like as she had more children, the belt came less into play. But being the oldest, I got the most of it from what I could remember. And as I said in the beginning, God has let me remember things as I can handle them. Uh, I was taught to do housework. I was making beds and doing dishes when I was six years old. Uh, my mother was a nurse, so she kept, you know, she was working at the time, too. We always had a maid. My family, my dad's brothers, uh, owned a grocery warehouse and a beer warehouse. We sold beer out of one side and groceries out of the other to all these stores that used to be in existence where their uh, families used to own. And I'd always go with him on trips sometime when he'd take orders. But I was raised pretty much being at home. 
and I was free. When I was born, my mother was in the hospital right after I was born, and then she's a real headstrong type of woman, and an RN and hard-headed Turk, as she calls herself. Well, the lady next to her was going into labor, and the doctor didn't show up on time, so my mother delivered the twins, so I, I, I got to be free. Uh, and she tells me that every now and then, just to remind me that I didn't cost her anything except the pain. Uh, I don't know what the point was, but she keeps telling me that every now and then. Uh, but there were times when, and I didn't, I blacked out some things about my youth, and I thought alcoholics were the only one that had the corner on blackouts. But I realized I, as an Al-Anon, and as a human being, black out things too, because they're too painful, and I can't handle them, either as a kid. And I've only done one other lead, and I only had like three days notice, so I didn't have all that time to get nervous. And about a day or two before the lead, I remembered something. And I was standing in my kitchen at home, my daughter was having a party, and I remember when I was about eight years old, and like I said, I did the dishes, and I was brought to be very responsible. And we had one of these old meat grinders, you know, it had four or five different parts to it. And we had a gas stove, because Cajun cooking, you do a lot better on a gas stove, because it takes some real low, low fire. And so I cleaned the meat grinder, and I always put it in a tray in the oven, because I know that's what my mother wanted, and had, had the pieces spread out. Well, about 10.30 one night, she woke me up and was beating me with the belt. She says, where's that little piece? Where's that little piece? And I was just hiding under the covers. She wouldn't give me a chance to talk. And then when she finally stopped swinging, she drug me in the kitchen, and she says, now go through the garbage and find that little piece. I said, it's not in there. It's in the, it's in the stove. It's not. I looked in there. I said, it's in there. She kept hitting me. And so I said, let me show you. So I opened the stove door, pulled the tray out, and it was right back in the corner. Do you think she said she was sorry? She says, you should have put it over here. And then I went back to bed. So why, it wasn't this painful when I remembered it a couple months ago. Uh, I can remember when we'd be eating breakfast at the table and my little sister would be eating and she'd slap her face because she wasn't eating right. So I learned that if I didn't want to get spanked, I didn't want to get hit, I needed to figure out what she wanted me to do. And I was seven years old, eight years old at this time. And this was probably the most indelible thought in my mind. I don't want to make people angry at me. I'm going to do what I need to do so they like me. So I started being a people pleaser, trying to figure out what do they like, talk to them about what they like. So I'd always make sure my chores were done. And when my chores were done, I could get on my bike and ride around town and go play ball and have friends and all. And went to church a lot. Well, as I got a little older, I became an altar boy. You know, it's said 95% Catholic, you're either Catholic or the 5% Baptist. I became an altar boy and learned Latin, you know, to speak the, for the Mass. And then I thought, you know, I'd like to be a priest. Everybody looks up to him, looks like a nice life. You know, and I was 11, 12 years old at the time. Well, we had gone to Catholic school all our life, and my mother pulled us out of Catholic school for one year, which really was like, you know, leaving the Catholic Church because all the rest of my aunts and uncles, all their kids went to Catholic school. But she pulled us out because she didn't feel we were getting an education. And my dad, you know, he pretty much let her do. And I didn't remember him really being that involved as a parent. I knew he was a hard worker. He provided as much as he could for us. And so she pulled us out, put us in public school one year. And I had a teacher who lived, who lived like two houses away. And you know, anything you do wrong in class, you know who's going to know about it, your mother. 
And so I was really trying to be on my best behavior. And a couple of times I didn't do real well, so I got my spanking. And then the next year I decided, well, I told my mom and dad, I said, I want to be a priest. I want to study to be a priest. They said, why? And I told them, it was a priest in our hometown that I really admired. I mean, when this man said mass, you would have swore that he had the look of God on his face. And he said, okay. He said, now you need to go back to Catholic school. Well, I ended up going to an all-Catholic boys' school about 30 miles away. I had to get on the bus every morning. My mother would get up, have breakfast for me, and I'd get on the bus and ride to school with all these older kids. And somehow I just didn't do real well. I don't know if it was I just didn't like the bus ride, didn't like going to school there, what it was. But I barely passed. I remember one time the bus driver was, uh, he had dropped the bus off, so this other guy and I had seen, he and I snuck back into the bus before school started and stayed in the bus for several hours. We played in the bus and played with the turn signal, not realizing that they could see the turn signal on, the police officer a block down. So he came over the bus and we said, oh Lord, we're in trouble. So we rushed out the back door thinking he wouldn't see us and he caught us. Well, they called my folks and my dad let my mom take care of it and so I got my punishment. Uh, then I, then we, I came back in eighth grade, went to the Catholic school, played sports. Uh, I had a date in the fifth grade. And this is significant because I, don't, I won't have another date till I was 23 years old. Had a date, two other guys and I, we invited these three girls out and I can still look at, remember us. We all had our little suits on, you know, tied, went to the theater. The girls sat down and watched the show and we stayed away from them. You know, we was, I didn't know what to do. You know, we were offering them candy and popcorn and everything. And then after the show, one of the parents picked us up, took us to the house and they had snacks and things for us. And the boys stayed over here talking whatever we talked and the girls stayed over here and we giggled and smiled and that was my date. So eighth grade, uh, went to Catholic school, and there were a couple other guys in my class, and they decided to go to the seminary also. So we looked into it, and then my high school years uh, were spent in the seminary. Uh, people looked up to you. Oh, you know, it's fantastic that your son's in the seminary. You know, it's like a blessing from God. You know, and the parents were recognized. And even though I'm, it's a small town in Louisiana, about 17,000, so everybody knew everybody anyway. But this was like extra recognition. You know, they recognized me. So I got privileges. You could bowl for almost nothing, and I loved to bowl. Uh, mothers would, would emulate, oh, yeah, I wish my son was in the seminary. And then girls would try to talk to me. I didn't know how to talk to girls. You see, I wasn't supposed to write to them while I was in the seminary, which you couldn't do. They censored your mail. I work in a prison. And they censored our mail more than we censored inmates' mails. Uh, there's one girl, I don't know why, I never gave her any, any lead, but she kept trying to write me a letter. So I got called in on the carpet one day by the head priest. He says, what's going on here? I said, what do you mean? Well, this girl Linda's writing to you. I said, hey, I'm not doing anything. I'm not interested in her. So they called my mom and dad and said, you need to have something done. And my mom said, hey, that's his life. So when I got home at Christmas, Linda came over the house, wasn't invited. She somehow knew when I was coming home. And I told her, I said, look, you're getting me in trouble. I have no interest in you. I've never shown anything. But I couldn't figure out why she was interested in me. So made it through high school, we played sports. Uh, I really loved it. I did fairly well in my studies and I wanted to be a priest. Every time I come home during the summer, we'd help the priest doing things and work with uh, the public school kids who didn't know God as much as I did. So I was gonna help them. And I got recognition, you know, I was in the seminary. Uh, and then graduated from high school in 64, there were 20 of us in class. When our class started as freshmen, there were 46 of us and a lot of them changed their majors. And the sad thing I saw happen over the years while I was in seminary for nine years was when the guy would drop out sometimes, his parents would almost alienate him because where, there goes our recognition. They were living their life through their child. 
And so I went on to college there in the minor seminary in Lafayette because you did six years one place and six years another. And after my sophomore year of college, I had enough college credit to have graduated from high school, I mean from college, because there's nothing to do. You're out in the middle of nowhere. So we were taking like 26 hours a semester. Latin, French, Greek, you know, all those things. Very little math, and that was good because I hated math. Still do. I can't even help my, my eighth grader with her math. It's over my head already. Uh, but still being involved with priests when I came home because that's what I wanted to be. Well, I got a little bit more recognition. Unbeknownst to me, being Lebanese, my family was a member of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So to go ahead and to be able to go into the major seminary, I had to get dispensation from the Pope. Boy, you talk about blowing my head up. And then I had a chance to go to Rome. Uh, every year they selected two students from the minor seminary to go to Rome, Italy, to study for six years. You lived over there and it was just an experience in living. Plus, you know, you really got a lot of recognition. Well, because of the time it took for me to get this dispensation, to go into the major seminary, they had to select somebody else. And I was really upset. I thought, why? So I got selected to go to seminary in New Orleans. And I'm really glad I did because uh, I enjoyed my time in New Orleans. I went there for two years. And during the first year, it was like, uh, if you're from a small town, all of a sudden they let you loose in New York City with a key to the front door where you're gonna live. It was like a, a kid in a candy store. I thought, man, this is fantastic. All we had to be, we had to be at, at, um, at mass every day and at class. And so I was gone. I, I saw New Orleans, got to make some friends there. And my studies weren't doing too good. I really wasn't hipped into philosophy. Uh, and I had some teachers that I just didn't get along with. But I thought, I'll tough it out. The next year, my junior year, my senior year of college, uh, I was starting to have some doubt. Is this really what you want? And I thought, nah, I think it is. You know, you're just going through a phase. Well, in April of 68, my dad died unexpectedly. And when I look back at it, he had been having heart trouble for the last six years and never really took care of himself. And so uh, I got a call one day, it was 11.30 on a Tuesday. We were in the church and I got a call and my aunt said, your dad just died, a heart attack. So uh, it was like the Tuesday before Easter. So uh, I, I went home the next day and on Friday, we had the funeral in our hometown. The bishop came in because my dad was very well known to church and had been a benefactor. And see, while I was in the seminary, they paid for my whole, my whole education. My parents did. Whereas a lot of kids' parents couldn't, so the seminary paid for them. So I guess the bishop kind of felt like, you know, even though he had been a priest in our hometown, he kind of felt like he owed it to my family because that was money they didn't have to spend on me. So he came in for the funeral and he was going to have, I don't know how many of you are Catholic, but you have a low mass funeral where you, there's no singing, you just do it very quietly and solemnly. Well, I got surprised. About 80 of my seminarians came in. The seminary paid for them to drive in. It's about a 180 mile drive. And they told, told the bishop that they were gonna sing a high mass funeral. The bishop said, no, you're not. They said, yes, we are. We think that much of Paul. And you talk about knocking my socks off. And they sang for the funeral and they have the most beautiful voices. I envy them. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I mean, if, I, if my life depended on my singing, you might as well shoot me now because I'm dead. There were times in seminary when I was in minor seminary, the last year I was what's called the head prefect. It's kind of like being student body president. And every Sunday night we'd have to sing uh, some music out of, a, out of a book. And if the guy that was supposed to sing it wasn't there, guess who had to sing it? Me. 
and the head priest was right behind me, and he just put his fingers in his ears all the time. You know, we're not talking about just a little two-man song. We're talking about a lot of singing. And I just prayed and said, God, here it goes. They used to ask me to be quiet when they sang so I could appreciate the singing. So anyway, they, they sang for the funeral, and I decided that I was going to be the replacement parent for my dad. Since he died, I was going to help take care of my brothers and sisters and my mom and be there for them, try to lighten their load. And I did a lot of responsible things, but I didn't cry. I didn't, I just buried the feelings. Another way I like to look at it is I mailed them off to UPS because I didn't want to deal with those feelings that I had for my dad who died because I was very close to him. I used to go to church with him on Sunday evenings. And when I was in seminary, I'd come home, we'd go to church every morning together and have breakfast. And so I stayed home during the Easter holidays and went back and I had comprehensives to go through to pass in college. And I don't know how you were in school, but I was not one to sit there and do a lot of studying. You know, I like to wait to the last minute and cram. Well, I got back and all my friends said, look, we're gonna help you. So I, I tried studying and my mind just wasn't on it. I take a break every night about 10 o'clock and just go pray. I said, God, I can't do this. I need your help. I didn't realize it, but I was learning about letting go and letting God. And I go back to studying. And the night before the test, I was still cramming as usual. And a guy says, here, let me give you something to help you stay awake. Because I was getting sleepy. Coffee doesn't keep me awake. I can drink coffee at 12 and be in bed at 12.05. He said, let me give you a Benadryl. It'll really hype you up. Oh, Dexedrine, I'm sorry. I said, oh, he said, yeah, you'll be okay. So I took it, and boy, everything was soaking in, just like a sponge. I said, hey, this is great. And I was ready for the test. Eight o'clock, we go in for the test, and guess what I'm doing? I'm crashing. And everything that I'm remembering is like going out the windows. And I'm thinking, oh, God. So I prayed some more. I said, God, help me with this. I took the test, and we had five of them. And I came out with an overall average of 1.0, which is all I needed. And I passed. During that year, I had been working with some kids in New Orleans. Because one thing we had to do, we had Wednesdays off, and we had to do pastoral work. And I like kids. Coming from a large family, and you know, all Catholics have five or six kids. If you have less than that, you're practicing birth control. <laughs> you know, we had people in the German community where you had nine and 10 and 12 kids. You know, I said, hey, what else is there to do? We're out here in the country. But I got real close to these kids, real poor kids in this one area. They weren't juvenile delinquents, but they were kids I really got to like a lot. Well, when, I, when my graduation ceremony was coming up, my grandmother came in, which really surprised me, pleasantly, some of my aunts and uncles. And these kids showed up dressed up in suit coats. And I thought, my, and I've got pictures of it. I mean, that's probably, that's one of the highlights of my life to see those kids because it just made me feel so good that, you know, hey, I'm a good person. These kids really think a lot of me. I was getting my good feelings from other people. And my grandmother just had a ball with these kids. They were cutting up and they were being real good. And uh, she was real impressed with those kids. And so I went home that summer and I did some more thinking. I said, you know, mom, I said, I'm not sure if this is what I want. She said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not sure if I want to be a priest. Hey, it's your life, you be what you want to be. So I had a date that summer, I was 22 years old. And I told her, I said, I'm gonna have a date. And I'm not gonna date anybody that's married or going out with anybody, I'm just gonna date with somebody I know. So I'm just gonna go out and I wanna see what I'm giving up. So my sister, who's two years younger, she had a friend of hers, and she said, you know, why don't you go out with Nancy? So I called Nancy, and she, being Catholic, she knew I was in seminary, she says, can you do that? I said, yeah. She says, okay. I went and vacuumed the car out, got it all good and clean, you know, and I got all dressed up and clean, and I went and picked her up, and she sat on one side of the car, and I sat here, and I was scared. 
didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say. Went out to eat pizza, went to the show, brought her home. I was scared the whole time. Didn't know what to do. It was like, you know, an alien over here. I didn't know what to do around a, a female. Well, remember I told you it's a small town. A couple of days later, I got a call from the, the pastor of my hometown. He said, Paul, I need to see you. I said, okay. So I went on in and he said, so what's up? He said, I heard you had a date. Yeah. He said, you know, you're not supposed to. I said, we didn't do anything. He said, but you're not supposed to be with women. You're supposed to be giving them up. I said, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> you know, I want to know what I'm giving up. I, haven't, I hadn't taken any vows yet. And I guess that's why I started thinking about it that summer, because at the end of my next year, of my first year in theology, I was going to start taking vows, and one of them was celibacy. And I wasn't sure I wanted to give that up. I didn't know what I was giving up, but it just didn't seem like something I wanted to give up. You know? So I went ahead, and I had another date that summer. I said, look, it's my life. I said, you can't kick me out of the seminary for having a date. You can report me. And, and, you know, they reported you every year. They sent a report back to the seminary and told them what you did. And Paul had two dates. The second date was probably about as bad. The girl hardly ever talked. She's a very attractive girl, but she hardly ever talked. And I didn't talk either because, again, I didn't know what to talk about. So I went back, and I started doing some praying. And, I, and everybody has a spiritual director. You're assigned a priest in the seminary, and he helps you, you know, to talk about your spiritual problems. So I was talking to him. And he said, look, it's your life. He says, I, I would hate to see you leave. I think you'd be a great priest. But if it's not for you, it's not for you. So I did a lot of praying and kind of working through some things. And then we had a retreat in February at a Boy Scout camp. And it was in the middle of nowhere. No heat, no hot water. You know, we had to get our own wood for the, for the fire. And we ate in a, like a big cafeteria setting. And I got up one morning and was just walking out. And I got on a bridge, and I can still remember the picture right now. And I decided, I'm getting out. I'm changing my major. And it was like a relief. It's like a ton of bricks just falling off my shoulder. I made a clear decision. I gave it to God, and he helped me make it. And I was excited. I was happy. I was going to miss my friends because I made a lot of really great friends. I'm still close with a lot of the guys. But I was happy because I had a clear-cut decision of what I didn't want to be. I didn't know what I was going to be other than a, an adult, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went back told a couple of my good friends I was getting out and they were sad but they said you know stay in touch and then I told my spiritual director and then I called my mom I said I'm you know just come over this weekend and we'll pack up so March 5th of 69 is when I left the seminary so I went home people want to know how come you left how come you left I said I changed my major uh, my mother stood by me uh, she said you know it's your life you do what you want to do and to hell with everybody else and I said okay and that was neat. So I just told people I changed my major, and they said, fine, you know, it's your life. Well, I taught school at the Catholic school there for a while. I was the first male teacher they'd ever had. You know, it was a school where I went to school. There were always nuns, you know, these real strict people. And then I decided, well, what, what, what are you going to do with your life? I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but I have to live with my conscience. <laughs> and I've, got, I've gotten more appreciated, and if there's a lawyer in here, please don't take this personal. But since I've been in prison work, I've gotten a more appreciation of living with my conscience. So I decided, well, I want to go into social work. I want to help people. I like being with people. I'm a people person. So I applied to go to LSU. You know, the Cajuns, the one that, the Tigers, the one that Kentucky beat a couple weeks ago. So I applied. I got accepted in there, and I lived in a dormitory. Well, there was a guy, it's a two-year program for your master's. There's a guy who was a second-year student who was doing a dissertation on sexual preferences 
I knew I didn't like guys. I wanted to be with gals. But he gave us his test, and he says, come see me a couple weeks, I'll give you the results. So I took the test. I didn't think anything about it. So I went to see him. He says, you're the horniest man on campus. I said, well, if you knew, where, if you knew my background, you'd know why. I said, but I'm keeping it under control. I'm not going to do anything and get in jail. Well, that first year, I, I don't know, my head just wasn't into it. I, I guess I really hadn't gotten over, you know, getting out of seminary and just getting adjusted back to civilian life. It's, because it's kind of like being in jail, or you're in this different type of existence, you're being trained for something, and then you're having to switch over to something completely different that, you know, what are you going to do? And so my grades weren't that good, so they asked me, they said, look, why don't you take a year break and do some work, and if you decide you still want to go into social work, come on back. So I went home, and that summer I got a job in Lafayette, working in mental health center. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. But it was only for like a summer intern for like three months. Well, there was a mental health center in my hometown, and the man that was the director, I talked to him a couple weeks before my other job was up. He said, you want a job here? And I said, yeah. He said, then you're hired. So I got a job in my hometown, mental health center, and I loved it too. I loved working with people. I was helping somebody. I take work home with me and try to figure out how to get these people better. How can I help them get better? My caretaker role really came up, and I was giving money to my brothers and sisters so they wouldn't have to ask my mother for it. My mother had, had a meeting with us a couple of days after my dad died, and he, was, he, he did real well in the insurance business. And he and his brother sold insurance together, and anything they sold, they split 50-50. Well, after my dad died, my dad's brother, Henry, made a statement that if it wasn't for him, for Henry, that my dad wouldn't have sold any insurance. And that really got me, because that's my godfather, too, and my uncle. I haven't talked to him in 24 years. So my mom had a meeting with us and told us, said, look, you're going to have to love me for who I am. You're not going to love me for my money. Because he left her comfortable. And so I've tried to keep that, but it seemed like she has, over the years, given more to my brothers and sisters than she has to me. And I had a hard time dealing with that because, again, she's telling me I'm not that good when all the time I had all these good feelings from other people. So I went, so I worked that one year in mental health, really loved it, and I applied to get back into LSU. Well, there was a guy that was assistant dean when I was there, and he never taught me. His name was Grady Hines. So I applied to get back in, and there was a new dean, and Grady was still assistant dean. Grady says, nope, you're not coming back. We don't see you as a good student. So I drove to Baton Rouge to talk to him and find out why. And he was the main one of the black bomber, and the new dean was going to go with him because the new dean had just walked in the door. And Grady says, no, we're not going to let you back in because I don't think you're a good candidate. He never could give me anything specific. I never had a running with the man. I don't know what it was. So I applied to go to Tulane in New Orleans. Tulane was that close to let me in on a full scholarship. Then guess who they called at LSU? They called Grady Hines. They blackballed me again. I applied to the University of Alabama. Same thing happened again. I was about ready to get in. So I talked to my mother, and she said, you want me to talk to Edwin Edwards? You know, he's the governor now. I want to be David Duke. He's from my hometown. And I, he was governor then. And I said, no, I don't want to get in like that, because then I'll have a hard time, because they know I'm being pushed on. So I was still working mental health, and there was a guy that used to be a priest that I knew that was working with us, and he said, why don't you go to work in a prison? I said, oh, what? I said, I don't want to be in a prison. No, he says, you just work there. You don't have to live there. Just work there. I said, okay. So I applied. Well, in the meantime, I had been dating Carol, and we dated for like six months, and we got married. 
in June. She was younger than I was. My mother didn't like her because she wasn't Catholic. She didn't have a degree. Her family was wealthy. I'm not sure why, if there was anything about her she liked, but she tolerated her. And we had a rocky time while we still, we still lived in Louisiana. So I, I taught Carol about going to work for the Bureau. She says, well, go ahead and apply and see what they tell you. So I applied and they had me come interview in Texarkana, Texas, which was the closest federal prison at the time. I went and applied and she drove up with me and they interviewed me. I did real well and they said, we want to hire you. Where do you want to go? I said, well, can I start here? No, you can, we don't have an opening. I said, do you have a prison in Colorado? Yeah, we have one in Denver, in Inglewood, a suburb. So that's where I'd like to go as a correctional officer or a guard as, as some people don't understand it. They said, okay, uh, we'll let you know in two weeks. So I told Carol what happened and we came on back and they told me, I got a letter in two weeks saying, you're hired, welcome to the Bureau of Prisons. You report to Denver, to Inglewood on May 1st of 1973. Well, when I got the acceptance letter, Carol said, I'm not going. I said, wait, we talked about this we're going. Well, I've never left town. I don't want to leave my grandmother. I said, I'm going whether or not you come. I said, I made a clear-cut decision. I'm going. Because I'd been working three jobs at the time. I was working in mental health. I was teaching two nights a week GED to people 30 miles away in the town. And I was also tutoring kids on the weekends because we needed the money. And I wanted a job with a future because I didn't have any future with the state of Louisiana. I was making like 700 a month. And the top I was going to make was maybe 1000 a month. And that was going to be like another 20 years down the road. I wanted a job with advancement, something I like to do. So I thought, well, I can work in the prison, you know, you're just working with people. And so she and I talked, and she finally came with me. We, we left Crowley, pulled in a U-Haul, and got to Denver. And because my dad had always said, if you ever have a chance to go to Denver, go there. It's beautiful. So that's why I wanted to go there to begin with. Went there, really liked it. We'd been there a short time, didn't realize you know, uh, how, how little air they have there. You know, they're a mile up, and I thought, well, you know, there's no difference. Well, I went to play tennis a week or so after we got there, and I couldn't breathe. And I'd been in pretty good shape. But that, that mile up, there's not as much air as there is down here. And so as time, uh, I was working, and I decided, I'm going to make this job work. I've left everything. I've got to make this job work. After a couple months there, Carol became pregnant for Melanie. Everybody kept saying it was the Coors beer we were drinking. I don't know what it was, but she became pregnant. And Melanie was born in February of 74. Well, I set a record the first year I was there, and I worked more overtime than anybody ever did at the prison. I did it for two reasons. One is we needed the money. And secondly, I got a lot of experience that I wouldn't have got had I just gone with the regular rotations. I worked like almost every, every day I had off. And we would go up in the mountains whenever I did have a day off. I never had holidays off because I had just started there. But I enjoyed the work, but I didn't want to, I didn't like the shift work, especially morning watch. Uh, the sun was too loud when I was trying to sleep, and I just couldn't sleep that way. So I, I started applying for jobs as a caseworker. Well, I kept getting shot down because I didn't have my master's degree. I only had one year taught it. So I went and applied to go to school at the University of Denver, right there in Denver, a private college. And my mother was thrilled. She'd always wanted me to get my master's. And so I told her, she said, well, I'll, I'll pay for it. So the first quarter was $1,500. So she paid for it, $65 an hour. She paid for it, I went, I made a 3.8. I was so thrilled. Second quarter comes up, she says, I can't afford it anymore. I said, wait, you knew how much in the beginning this was gonna cost you, and you said you were gonna pay for it. Oh, but I can't afford it. And yet she brought my brother, she brought my brother home. My other sister, she brought her a trailer but she couldn't pay for me. 
big time resentment. So I went and applied for a loan, got a student loan. And I went to school the next two semesters, the next two quarters, and I did my field work that summer at the Denver Probation Department. And still doing well in work, I got selected as employee of the month one time. I was the youngest, youngest staff member as far as time in to ever get it because of my work performance. And I, they were working with me on my school schedule. I was working five days a week and going to school two days and even working some overtime. Didn't I say something about being a workaholic? I thought I did, yeah. So I graduated with 3.95. I got five invitations. I sent one to my uncle, that I, not, one of my other uncles, not the one I don't talk to. I sent one to the, the bishop. I kept one, gave one to my mother. I sent the fifth one to Grady Hines. And, and I put in there, I said, yeah, I'm graduating and take this and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I didn't get it sent back to me, but that was kind of my way of getting it over with. But I graduated on April 5th, August 15th, which was my mother's birthday. She flew in for the graduation. And two days later, I got selected to come to some place called Ashland, Kentucky. I didn't know what it was about, but it was a promotion. It's closer to home, about 400 miles. So I told Carol, I said, we're going to Ashland, Kentucky. So I looked up on the map, kept looking for it, and found it. I said, well, it's in Kentucky. Yeah, okay, there you go. And so I looked up the prison and learned about it. It was a sister institution to the one I was working at. They held kids here, and we held the kids over there. We held kids over here east of the Mississippi, and Denver took care of the kids west of the Mississippi. Had a lot of Indians and Hispanics. And here we had a lot of kids, a lot of uh, blacks, and a lot of moonshiners. So we transferred to Denver. Well, the drinking hadn't really become a problem. Melanie was 18 months old. We were really excited. We moved here and got here on September 19, 1975 at 2.45 in the afternoon. I remember that. Pulling the U-Haul trailer. Checked in, checked in the motel, and went looking for a place to stay. Found a place in Belfont, uh, the only rental house on New Hampshire Drive. And moved in, and I started my new job. I thought, I can do this one. I, I did so well on the other one, I got recognized. This was a different job. It was a paperwork job. There was a lot of technical things to it that I had to learn. I couldn't just walk in and do it and boom, it's done. Well, I wasn't doing too well at it. And I was bringing a lot of stress home from work. And Carol was having a hard time adjusting. And she started drinking, started going to doctors. I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Because she used to drink and we went out and get drunk. I thought she couldn't hold her liquor. You know, I, I, I didn't care for drinking very much. I didn't think my father had a drinking problem. But I, I said earlier, you remember things as you can handle them. I remember I was home one holiday season in the seminary. My dad had just had a heart attack. And the doctor told him you could have two drinks only. And if you're going to have two drinks, and that's all you can have, you're going to have as big as you can. So he got one of these big Bama jelly glass, so you know, about 18-ounce glass. And he was fixing himself a drink. And my mother said, what in the hell do you think you're doing? He said, I'm fixing me one of my two drinks. She said, the hell you are. And I could still see that missile going across the room and hitting the wall. She says, I'll fix your drinks. So she got one of these little glasses and probably put more water. She, he likes scotch. Well, you could hardly see the scotch in there, but he put a lot of ice and a lot of water. And she fixed his drinks. So I didn't think, you know, he had a drinking problem because I never saw it. I never heard it. Uh, so we, we got to Ash, and I finally, you know, I worked through the job. Finally, it was at the point where they said, hey, if you don't get this job down, 
we're going to put you back being a correctional officer. And I thought, I don't want to go back to shift work. i got to straighten this thing out. So fortunately, I was able to, to, to get over the problems I had with the job. And Tara and I weren't, weren't getting, because I was spending so much time with my work. I was bringing work home. I was staying late at work. And we weren't doing very much as a family. Uh, I'd buy her, I'd, buy, I'd go out and buy, buy beer so we could have it at home to drink with pizza or if it was that time of the month or whatever the occasion was just to pacify her so she'd be off my back and she got pregnant again after she got pregnant just a little while after we got here and she had a miscarriage and it really tore her up uh, we had a lot of friends that were nurses and they were telling her that's God's way of saying there's something wrong with the baby and it wasn't meant to be well she blamed herself and I just I, I, I looked at it very rationally and objectively it was meant to be. She didn't like the way I handled it. And it was years later that she still reminded me that you really didn't get upset because I lost the baby. I said, well, I'm, I wasn't blaming you for it. But she, want, she wanted some whatever, but I wasn't going to do it that way. And then a little later, uh, we had to move off Belfont, out of Belfont because the, our landlord sold the house unbeknownst to us. So we had to find another rental place. We found one in South Ashland. And she decided to go back to school, Carol did, and that was great because she hadn't been to school since we'd been married. And she had some college. Her dad never paid for her to go to much other college than that. He was real tight with money. And so she went to school a semester, did real well, and then she became pregnant. And so we had to move, and the lady was going to go up on our rent like double. Couldn't afford it. So I got a house on the reservation across from the prison in Ashland. And we moved there in May of 78. Leanne was born in August of 78. Uh, I'm told she looks like me. That's encouraging, as long as she doesn't look like somebody else. Uh, Melanie was doing well. She was in school. And we went home on vacation, and Carol had to have emergency surgery. And I really didn't see any problems with her, her using. I, I didn't want to see them. Went home, and she had to stay home because she had to have emergency gallbladder surgery, which I'm told happens a lot after women have babies at times. And so I had to come back to Kentucky, and then later she and Melanie flew back. She came back, and we just started arguing and fighting. You know, you don't love me as much as you like Melanie. You're doing this, you're doing that. And she was just drinking, having problems, taking her to the doctors, getting pills. She went to the doctor one time. I took her, and the doctor said, uh, the doctor gave her a bottle of Melaril for depression. Well, she had it filled one day. The next day she says, I need to have this filled. I said, well, you just had it filled. She says, well, I lost it. So what? And then I got a call from the pharmacy say, tell Carol she can come get her refill. So wait, she just had to fill Jesse with 30. Where is it? So she said she lost it. But she did, she took it. So I called the doctor. He said, well, she said her grandmother died and she was real upset. I said, her grandmother's still living. You know, the lies started. And, but I wasn't putting it together. You know, I, I really didn't, didn't want to see that there was a problem. I thought, well, you know, that's just some of her game plan. But didn't see that there was a problem. Then she and I started playing games called hide and seek. She would hide the bottle and I would hide her. People would call, Carol would be not feeling good. And that's all I thought it was. Thought maybe it's that time of the month or having headaches or whatever. Well, Carol's not feeling good. Uh, you know, she can't do this because of this. And I'd go around and try to find her bottles. And I'd come home from work and I'd find her glasses. I'd start sniffing her glasses, thinking if I, at least if I know she's drinking, she's not going to get over on me. I was getting crazier. 
Well, you know, the second step mentions the word restores to, in, to sanity. I didn't realize how crazy I was getting. Remember, I said, God lets me remember things I can handle. I remembered one day while she was gone and the kids were gone, I was searching around for her bottles. Like I said, we played this game, hide and seek. And anytime I could find something, I was going to find it and pour it out. Well, I found one of her bottles one time. It was half empty or half full, however you want to look at it. And I found it in a sewing case, and she never sewed. So I said, I'm going to fix her. This is the truth. I got a bottle of laxatives, poured them all in there. Now, this is the same person with a master's degree in social work, an adult who has not been scored as being crazy. Not legitimately. I poured it in there and I said, now she's going to drink this and get so sick, she's not going to want to drink anymore. I was just beginning to feel the pain. And I shook it up, put it in there, and I said, now I'm going to wait and see it. I'm going to know when she drinks now because she's going to have to run forever. Well, God must have given me a sane moment somewhere. And he says, look, dummy, if she drinks it, you got to take her to the hospital. They're going to want to know where all these laxatives came from. And you can't say the devil made you do it. So I went and poured it out like I did many of them. But I, I still didn't really see the writing on the wall. I thought she just had a little drinking problem. Because my idea of a drunk, some other drinking problem, was a man, an old man, who lives in an alley wearing a trench coat around this 55 barrel, gallon barrel with a fire going. To me, that was a drunk. Now, we had a drunk in my family, my Uncle Connie, an old sailor. And I remember one night my dad was taking us to get, get ice cream, and he was weaving all over the road, and dad said, that was Uncle Connie. He was kind of the laugh of the family. But I looked back and really realized how much the man was suffering. But my, that was my idea of a drunk. It wasn't a female. It wasn't my wife. And then she started telling me there were things I was doing that made her drink, and I believed her. So I started cleaning house more, got a second job, staying home more. Figured that way I could watch her and be here. But the more I cleaned house, and I kept house real clean. I did cooking, I did ironing, I didn't do windows, but I did everything else. Someone else, it didn't, didn't help. It didn't cut her drinking down. I learned later, I just gave her more time to drink and use. But I couldn't see that, I thought I was helping. There were times she says, hey, we're having pizza tonight. I said, well, let me go get beer. Figure I'd make her happy. Or, or, or we played another game, let's make a deal. If you don't drink, I'll get you this. She played it perfectly and played me perfectly. She wouldn't drink, I'd buy her something, then she'd drink to celebrate that I bought her something. We used to go to parties every Christmas. The warden would always have a party at his house, everybody would get all dressed up, you know, and it was all the department heads, and I was one at the time. And uh, I was watching her drinking, and she wasn't drinking. I thought, boy, this is great. She didn't have a problem. Well, we went home, and she got drunk to celebrate that she didn't drink. And I'm thinking, wait, there's something, something doesn't make sense here. I'm trying to figure out, what did I do that made her drink? I put the blame back on me. What did I do? Did I maybe watch her too much? Or maybe the house wasn't clean enough? Or maybe I didn't buy her something? I was putting guilt on myself because I thought I was to blame. Well, I got promoted to be a unit manager at the prison, so I didn't have to move. And it was doing well, but I was spending a lot of time at work because I didn't want to come home. I'd clean the house up, and she'd say, I'm not going to drink today, and I would feel good. Remember I said earlier, I let other people dictate my feelings, how I was going to feel today. So I would come home at noon, the house looked like a hurricane hit it. The kids would just run around and tear the place up, and she'd be drunk, and I'd be mad. 
you lied to me. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I would get mad. I came home one day. The house was a wreck. She was drunk. And when she's drunk, she's in a nasty mood. I went to the kitchen and got the longest butcher knife I could find. And I said this with no remorse or feelings in my heart. I said, do us all a favor and kill yourself right now. I said, put us out of our misery. This is the end of side one. Please stop the machine now and turn the tape over. Fortunately, as usual, she didn't listen to me. I put the knife up. And I was really getting angry. I'd start fights with her. Don't remember what it was about, but I'd bring stuff up that happened six months ago because I'd been stuffing all these feelings. You know, I'm supposed to be the responsible one in the family, the man of the house, and who thought rationally and was very responsible. My kids weren't having people spend the night at the house anymore. I wondered what was wrong. I learned later that kids were affected too. And I blamed myself for the problems they had. One thing I vowed when I, when I got out of seminary and I knew I wanted a family was I wasn't going to make the same mistakes my mother made or do what my mother did to discipline. I want to talk to the kids, be firm, but not spank them. I was doing pretty good. One night, Carol went out and, got, was, getting, and was drinking. Somebody called me and said, Carol's drunk over here. And I, I didn't know what to do. I just sat there at home. The kids were sleeping, and I was getting angry and angry and more angry. And then I blacked out. I don't remember what I, I remember what I did, but I didn't remember at the time. I went and got a belt. I started beating my kids. And they were sleeping. They hadn't done anything. I just kept hitting them. And I was crying and screaming and yelling Carol's name. And I didn't remember doing it at the time. My kids woke up in the morning, didn't know how they were black and blue. I told them, I said, you must have fallen out of bed. And I was sincere with that. I remembered that two years after I was in the program, in a meeting. God let me remember it with people that were my friends. And I could deal with it. And I went back and I said, do you remember? My oldest one said, yeah. I said, I'm the one that did it. Oh, Daddy, no, you loved us. I said, I know, but I was sick. And that's what happened. And I said, I need your forgiveness. He said, okay. And I told my other one, Leanne, was, wasn't old enough to really comprehend it, but she said, okay. Uh, I held a lot of things in because I didn't think I was supposed to show feelings. I stopped. I withdrew from life. I worked and came home. And then I resented it. I thought I was, you know, like I said, a game we played hide and seek. I was trying to hide Carol. I thought nobody knew that she had a drinking problem. Everybody did but me because I didn't want to see it. That 
sickness called denial, I was, I was really nourishing it big time. She decided we went to, we were going to a counselor. We wanted to get these problems straightened out. We had bills up to galore. You know, I thought if I bought her something, she wouldn't drink so much. Maybe I could bribe her out of this sickness or whatever. So we would get, we were, our bills were getting higher. So we went to see uh, a counselor. And he was working with us, and we were doing fairly well, but she was still drinking. One night, she had been drinking, and she got the keys to the car and was going to town to get more beer. I thought, I'm going to fix you. I called the police and I asked them. I said, now look, my wife's driving this car. If this car has this license on the front, this is what she's wearing. She's going to this liquor store, and she's drunk, and she's going to get more to drink. Please arrest her. They never caught her. She went there and came back. I said, where'd you go? She said, I went to the liquor store. I said, this one? Yeah. Which way'd you go? This way. Same way I told the police. I said, wait. Why can't I help? You know, I'm trying to control this madness that's going on in her life so we have some peace and quiet. Alan told me later, you can't control it. And I tried. I mean, it's like a Mack truck going downhill and I was standing in front of it. I thought I could control her drinking by the bribing. He said, if you drink again, I'm going to do this. She did and I didn't. She did and I didn't. Then this guy, this, this counselor said, look, you need help. You have an alcohol problem. So she told me, he says, I'm going to the care unit. I said, what's the care unit? She said, that's a drug treatment center. I said, why? She said, because I need help with my drinking. I said, not to learn how to drink. No, she said, no, no, I have a drinking problem. Uh, but God, thank you. Answer my prayers. So I went ahead and she checked into the care unit. When I dropped her off, it was like, that feeling I had the day I decided I didn't want to be a priest anymore is like, she's going to go in there and go cure her. She won't drink anymore. We'll be great. Be like Ozzy and Harriet. Now remember, I have a master's degree in social work, and I, I remember these things, but my heart's telling me something differently. So she went to care unit, went to see her every day, went to, that, went to my first Al-Anon group. And I walked in there, and I said, wait, there's something wrong with this picture, folks. It was me and 13 women. I said, wait. Where's the guys? Is this the wrong room? I said, no, this is where, you, where you're supposed to be. So I sat down and went around the table. Everybody introduced themselves and said, why are you here? I said, I'm here to help get my wife sober. And, and I, was ser- I was serious as a heart attack. And they laughed. And I said, what's wrong? Did I say something wrong? I figured these ladies didn't understand. They weren't living with a woman. They didn't know what I was going through. Because see, before she went to care unit, I thought I was the only one feeling this way. I was so I felt like an island. I thought nobody can be feeling what I'm feeling. I tried talking to people at work. Said, "Hell, I'd leave her if I were you." You know, I tried to talk to other people. I'd leave her if I were you. you know, I wouldn't put up with that stuff. But they don't understand that you love these people. There's love there, and you and you want to help. So I, they laughed and they said, "Wait, we're not laughing at you." We said the same thing when we walked in. There's nothing you can do to keep her sober. If there was, you wouldn't be here. Uh, they still don't understand. So I went the four times, you know, just to, just to be there. So she could have her weekend visits. And she got out, and I thought, good, she's not going to drink anymore. We're going to have a great life. She got out. She was going to AA meetings. She'd come home, and her clothes smelled smoky. I knew she went to a meeting. So about a month later, we went on a picnic to, Green, to Grayson Lake with another guy that she had gone through the unit with his family. They always had a big reunion. And we, I brought a pop-up tent. We picnic, 
I had a great time. I thought, man, this is this is the life. I mean, God has answered my prayers. Everything is great. I'm not going to have any more drinking. Does this sound familiar? So, Labor Day was the next day. I was off work. Carol started drinking again. And she started using. And I, I missed the first hour of meeting the first week she was out of the unit. I thought, I don't need this anymore. It's not, I don't have a problem. She's the one with the drink. If she doesn't drink, everything's going to be fine. I don't know why the lady, well, I know why she called me, but one of the ladies in the group says, Paul, we miss you. My ego was, you know, they need a man in there to help straighten them out. You talk about ego. You know, I, I didn't have a problem. I figured I could go help them. You know, the social work in me came out. So I said, okay, I said, appreciate you calling. So I went back. And there was a gray-haired lady whose husband was going through the unit, and she's now my sponsor. I call her my gray panther. And she hadn't been there very long. And I thought I was an old-timer compared to her. And she says, I'm going to give you one, one piece of advice, Paul. So what's that? And I didn't want to hear it from a woman anyway. I'd been tired of fighting with one for so many years. She said, God gave you two ears and one mouth. So apparently he means for us to listen more than to talk. I said, where in the hell are you coming from? I said, I'll show you. I'll do that. I can do that. I'll show you. And guess what? I started hearing me in those meetings. I started hearing feelings that I had stuffed and I had mailed off to UPS and they were coming back for me to deal with when I could deal with them. And I could deal with them in those meetings and they allowed me to be myself. And I was scared. But you see, I couldn't trust anybody with my feelings. They'd been hurt so much. I had trusted the person I cared about the most and you figure if anybody's going to care about you, it's going to be the one that you care about the most. But every time I tried, she'd step on them. I didn't realize that I had set myself up. So I started trusting them with my feelings and talking about how I felt. They didn't want to hear about her and her problem. They wanted to know about me. And that was different because I had, I had, you know, given up my life. Other than my work and being at home and keeping house, that was my life and what kind of life it was. So I started talking about feelings and anger. And they started talking about gratitude. And I said, grateful for what? I said, I hear people talking about being grateful that they married an alcoholic. I am not grateful I married one. So I've had nothing but hell. They said, you made choices. You had choices. I said, I didn't have any choices. They said, yes, you did. They said, remember, listen. So I kept listening, and I started feeling. And it felt strange. And I had to trust them. I had played Let's Make a Deal with God so many times before I went to Al-Anon. And he never did what I wanted him to do. And remember, I started to be a priest. I, I, I pushed God out. You weren't doing what I wanted you to do, you're out. You, you're not going to help me. You can't help me. You don't want to help me. I thought he had left me. I go in there and I started trusting these people, these women. And it was just me and them all the time. But they understood. If I was a blind man, they were talking about me, no matter what. Because I, they were telling my story. They were telling my feelings. I said, well, how long do I have to be in this program? They said, why? I said, I can't be here forever. You know, you know, just teach me what I need to learn and I can go on. You know, I want like a microwave program. They said, no, Alan I is not microwave. It's like a slow cooking spaghetti sauce. It takes a long time. They said, you're crazy. I said, not me. He's the one that's drinking. He said, no, you're crazy. He said, and you're here to get sane. You're here for yourself. 
So they asked me, said, when was the last time you did something just for you? I didn't have to think very long because I couldn't remember. I said, what do you mean just for me? They said, just for you. I said, I don't know. He said, then do something just for yourself. Just what you want to do. What would you like to do? I said, I want to go to Wendy's and get a hamburger. Same, huh? And they said, do it. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I went to Wendy's, got a hamburger. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think I deserved it. My self-esteem was to, I should have been saving this money to pay on a bill or saving for the kids. I didn't deserve it. I went back next week. They said, what did you do? I said, oh, what I did. I said, you did that? I said, yeah. So how did you feel? I said, guilty as hell. I didn't think I deserved it. He said, keep practicing. So I started doing a little bit of other things that didn't feel so bad. I started playing sports again. And, they, and you know what? Those crafty old gals got me to learn that the more I'm doing for me, the less I'm thinking of her and trying to control her. And God, I'm a great attempt, a great one to try to control. So I kept going and kept experiencing these feelings. Well, and Carol was drinking, but I increased my meetings and I was talking to these gals on the phone. And Carol would keep coming home with smoky clothes. I knew she was going to meetings. And then she stopped coming home with smoky clothes. I knew she wasn't going to meetings. She was going out drinking. And yet they told me, take care of yourself. Well, I forgot that one night. I got a call from a friend of mine saying, your wife is drinking at the American Legion over by the bridge. I said, well, I'm going to go get her out. Remember, same person. So I went there, knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, and I had a friend of mine come over to watch Melanie and Leanne. And the friend said, I'll stay here and watch, and watch the kids while you go get Carol. Excuse me. So I, I rang the doorbell and he said, what do you want? I told him who I was. I said, well, you're not a member. I said, no, but my wife's in there. I said, okay. They let me in. A room full of guys, a couple of gals, and Carol's over there at the bar dr drinking with this guy she went through the unit with. And I said, let's go home. She said, what? I said, let's go home. She said, I'm not going home. I felt like the only American in the middle of a bunch of Vietnamese. I was in the wrong territory. I was on their turf. And this one guy came and said, what's your problem, buddy? I said, my problem is my wife and I want her out of here. I said, if she ain't ready to go, she ain't leaving. She was bigger than I was, a little younger, and I thought, well, do you want to fight him? Because if you do, you have to fight everybody else in here, and you're outnumbered. I had another sane thought. You better get out. So I told Carol, I said, when you come home tonight, you and I are going to talk. So I left. Uh, because I'd have, had my, I'd have had my butt beat if I stayed there, because I was outnumbered. All her friends and were there. So I waited up and waited up. She came home. She was drunk. And I used to give my best. You know, I couldn't preach since I wasn't a, a priest. But I saved my preaching from, for Carol when she was drinking. And I, I gave her probably one of my best speeches that night. She didn't remember a word I said. I should have written it down to tell her when she was sober. But I used to think I could talk to her when she was drunk. The next morning, she, she had a headache. And I had one, too, from staying up so late. And I had to go to work. And I said, remember what we talked about last night? When? I said, when you came in. She said, when did I come in? I said, wait. No, you're not getting off this easy. You remember what I told you? No. She was in the blackout. She didn't remember coming in the house. So I went to work really angry, poured myself into my work, but I had her up here. They told me now and now we let, we let them live rent-free in our minds. And she was up there. Everywhere I went, I was worried about her, trying to figure out what caused this, what could I do to stop it, what could I do? 
I wasn't listening to these meetings as well as I should have, or maybe I wasn't ready to. I don't think I was. They kept saying, let go and let God. So what in the hell is God going to do? He, he left me a long time ago. I kept going to meetings, and so one lady kept saying, and I'm slow in the program, and there's probably a reason for it because once I get it, I get it. This lady kept saying, you don't have to accept unacceptable behavior. And she said it one time, and I heard it. And I said, this is unacceptable behavior. I don't have to accept it. And I started praying. I don't know why, but I just started praying to God. I said, God, help me make the right decision. So I went home the next day from work, and Carol was sober. And I said, and this was like the 1st of December. I said, uh, your birthday is December 31st. January 1st, you're out of the house. You can't do that. I said, yes, it can be. I have to live on this reservation. You don't. And I already checked it out with the warden. I said, you're out of here at the end of this month. What if I don't drink for 30 days? I said, yeah, you won't drink, then you'll drink the next day to celebrate you didn't drink. I'm not putting up with that. I have a life, these kids have a life, and you're causing us hell. I'm tired of the roller coaster ride. She says, you mean it? I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to have you close on that front doorstep on January 1. You're going to start the new year off on the right foot. And then she went to see a doctor who had just come back from treatment, and he called me and said, Paul, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So I went over to talk to him, and he convinced me to let her give it another try in treatment except send her far away. But you see, while she was in the care unit, we went there every day. It was like a vacation for her. I was doing the housework. I was feeding the kids, taking care of all their needs, and she was free. There was something wrong with that picture. But I couldn't see it. I thought, you know, she's going to come back and everything be cool, but we were seeing her every day. Well, he said, I, I got her a bed at Hazleton. I said, well, how much does insurance pay? He said, it won't pay anything. I was already up to my wazoo and money that I owed, so I went to the credit union guy. It was on a Thursday afternoon. I said, I need to borrow $5,000. He said, I'll have it for you in an hour. Didn't ask me a question. And usually he does. I don't know why, but he didn't. I guess God must have been working in there, and I just didn't want to see it. So he had a check for me. Friday, bought her a ticket, put her on a plane Saturday morning, and she got to Hazleton Saturday drunk. Now, she went to carry you sober as heck, but she got there drunk. I guess that's just the way to do it. Her last one. And I told her, I said, I'm buying you a one-way ticket. I already sent the check to Hazleton to pay for it. I said, I'm buying you a one-way ticket. If you get out of there before your, your 28 days, you're not coming back to Ashland. I don't care where you go, but you're not coming back here. Well, the kids and I, I, I increased my meetings. I went to seven meetings a week. I found them. I went to open AA meetings. And I started listening to the pain that AA people suffer and what choices I have. And I started feeling good about me. I got my kids into Alateen, especially my older one. And I started praying a lot and realizing that I have to let go and let God. Well, the first week she was there, she wanted to come home. It was freezing. It was up in Minnesota. And there was ice all over her window. They could see a lake outside their window, and there were people fishing in the ice. She wanted to come home because she didn't need it. I told her, I said no. And I talked to her counselor, and I told her counselor exactly what I told Carol. The second week, Carol she still wanted to come home, and I told her no. We had sent her a care package. The kids and I had boxed up some things, you know, some tea and uh, not tea, but Kool-Aid and some other things that she needed. Mailed up to her, and they went through it, and they gave it to her. About the third week, it started. She st I started hearing an attitude change. She was getting serious about working on herself, and I was feeling good. I was going to meetings, I was sharing, and I was listening, and I knew things were starting to hit right. It felt so good. I was getting some, some peace of mind in my life that I never thought I could get again. She came back 
and she was a different person. She had a different attitude. She was she was making meetings no matter what time they met, and she was coming back with smoky clothes on. All this time she was smoking herself too, but I didn't care. I didn't mind doing the work at home. She was where she was supposed to be. I was still I was still doing things for me. I was playing sports again. I was going to meetings. I was doing things for myself also. It became easier the more I practiced that, the more the more I could do it. And I wasn't arguing with my kids. I had learned that when I have a when I have a concern, I need to ask myself how important is it. If it is important, then talk about it rationally and work it out and go on with life. I was still dealing with my father's death. It took me ten years to deal with him dying. The anger I had for him dying, he had no right to die. When Carol and I went counseling, I was able to bury him with love and say things. They had me do role painting with a chair and imagine, okay, what do you want to say to your father? We had to work up to it. It didn't happen all of a sudden. And I was able to work through that and get that baggage off of me because I believed I'm still, I was still carrying a lot of baggage. And they, they started talking about the steps. When I admitted that first step that I had no control, and for me that's a big step, I have to do it every day, it was like a freedom that I never felt. And then they talked about a higher power. And I started talking about God, started talking to God. And the little miracles started happening. Money would arrive when I needed it. Because I'd say, God, I don't know where we're going to get this money because we got this medical bill. A check would come in from the insurance company for something that I completely forgot about. Or I'd get a check from, uh, from my grandmother's real estate that I didn't know about. Or just peaceful things would happen in a household. Things would happen at work because I got out of the way and stopped trying to control everybody. I learned to mind my own business, and that was a big thing. Because the program was helping me. I wanted to go out and help. I was just looking for someone to help. And my sponsor kept saying, help yourself first. Help yourself first. Because you can't be good for someone else if you can't be good for yourself. So I had to keep the focus on me. I got a higher power. Let go and let God is my favorite slogan. It's what keeps me sane. But it really didn't make much sense at the time. I didn't really think I needed it. Well, Carol stayed sober about two and a half years, and then she went back to drinking and using again. And I chose to ride that roller coaster with her. I, I wasn't as sane as I thought I was. And I was saying, if you, if you do this, I'm going to do this. She drank. I didn't do it. I didn't put her out. And she went up, we, and I went on the ride with her. And they kept saying, you have a choice here. But they weren't going to tell me what to do. And I knew they weren't. I had enough out on to realize they weren't going to tell me what to do. They were going to let me make my own decision. I had to hurt enough to make a decision. I realized I didn't have to ride that roller coaster. I don't have to be miserable when she is. So when, she, when, when I got off of it and started doing things to keep the focus on me, then I could be better with the kids and not be so uptight. I was feeling better, even though she was hurting. But it made her hurt alone. I prayed for her. They said, you have to pray for him. And when I first got down on her, I prayed that she died. Because I wanted her out of her misery. I wanted her out of my life and out of my misery. But they said, no, you got to pray for the right motive. Keep your motives right. So I learned to pray for her. I figured, I couldn't do anything. Maybe he could. And he has. Well, she got pregnant again. And none of these were, were planned. I was 39 years old. And so she was pregnant. And we figured we might have another girl. But I wanted a boy. Well, 
He was born on October 3rd, 1985, and he was a boy. We named him Daniel Paul. My mother warned him to name me after my dad. Warned me to name after my dad, who is Saeed. And I said, No, no, we're not gonna do that. I said, That's too hard to pronounce anyway. My father-in-law wanted us to name him after him, Edward. And Carol said, No. I said, Well, why don't we name him? Just give him a name. She said, Well, we'll name him Daniel and give him your middle name, Paul. I said, Great. While he was in the hospital, he developed some breathing problems. And the doctor, Dr. Shaw, who I'm ever indebted to, said he has a breathing problem. He has apnea, which is crib death in other terms where kids just stop breathing. She says, and there's a monitor you can get for him, and it will tell you when he stops breathing so you can help him. So we went ahead and got that monitor the day he got out of the hospital. He was wired up. He looked like one of these little robots. And he, he was on that thing for four and a half years. And what it was, it was a patch that went around a Velcro strip and had two patches, one over each, each nipple. I think the one on the right monitored his breathing, and the one on the left monitored his heartbeat. If he stopped breathing for more than 20 seconds, it would go off. If his, heart, if his breathing rate got below 60 beats a minute, it would go off. Without that monitor, he'd been dead the first week. When, and they told us, here's how you have to work it. And this is when I learned about letting go and letting God. They said, when the alarm goes off, you hit the reset button. I said, when do we touch him? You don't touch him yet. They said, 20 seconds later, when it goes off again, you hit the reset button. Do I touch him now? No. When it goes off a third time, then you press the reset button, then you put your hand on him. You don't shake him. I said, wait, that's 60 seconds. Do you know how long 60 seconds is when you've got a child there and you think they may be dead? And the only thing I could do was pray. That's where I learned about God. There were at least four or five times that we went beyond 60 seconds. You put your hand on him, and then when it goes off another 20 seconds, then you shake him a little bit. And if that doesn't get him breathing, the next 20 seconds, which is what, a minute and 40 seconds, then you pick him up. There were three times that we had to pick him up. And you talk about learn how to pray. Because if it wasn't for God, he'd have been dead a long time ago. You look at him today, he's healthy. I've got kind of a warm feeling in my heart because he is very special to me. But we had pneumograms run on him while he's sleeping which measures his breathing and heart rate and there were some problems. And the doctor was asking, he says, you can keep him on there as long. If he's 20 years old and he's still having you can keep him on there. He said, it's up to y'all. So when he was about four, they started running some pneumograms and they were showing normal. And so at four and a half, he says, it's up to y'all if y'all want, want him out. Well, you see, he had slept with us for the first two years of his life, in our bed right between us. His vanning happened, we were there. We didn't leave him alone with anybody for the first three years. And then the first time we did leave to go eat downtown Ashland at Bonanza, we left him with a nurse friend who knew CPR, and he had just woke up, so he was wide awake. We were gone, we got to Bonanza, I called home. How's Daniel doing? He's doing fine. Well, when, after he was two, Carol and I decided we need to put him in his own bed in another room. That first night, neither one of us slept because we went there and kept looking at the lights. I took him to a lot of meetings with these lights blinking. Funny story, when he was, uh, when he was about three weeks old, Carol's parents came in and we took him to the Huntington Mall and we were walking by Kenny's shoe store and this kid came out that worked there about 20 years old. He said, hey, what's that? And I had him in my arms and had his battery here attached with the lights. And he said, this is one of these new 1985 babies. <laughs> he said, what? I said, yeah. I said, it runs by batteries. You don't have to feed it and it just grows. Wow. And I went on for 10 minutes, and he believed me. I told Carol, I said, we're not buying any shoes from this guy. 
But I went back and told him what, what was going on. So he outgrew it, thank God. But Carol was still drinking and she was still on a roller coaster ride. But I wasn't riding that ride with her. I had a peace of mind that I'd gotten this program that I didn't want to give up. I had resentment started. When she was getting ready to come home from Hazleton, I told I, I was talking to the meeting and I said, Well, I'm making out my list. And one lady says, What list? I said, Well, a list to tell Carol all the hell she's put us through. She says, What? I said, Yeah. She said, Why? I said, Because I want her to remember what she's put us through and let her be grateful that we're staying with her. And the lady says, Why? She says, Can you change the past? I said, No. She says, Neither can she. All you have is today. She says, so if you're going to make a start with her, then start from the day she gets home. You have to forgive her for her past, and she has to forgive her for herself. Because there's things in your past you're going to have to forgive yourself for, too. And I'm still thinking, I didn't have any problems. So I did that. And I didn't throw up the past to her. I wanted to. Many times I want to tell her, yeah, but you remember when you did all this? But I realized there was nothing to gain. And if I was going to keep my sanity, keep my, my serenity that I had at that time, then I had to do what I was told to do. I had to trust these people. And I did, and it worked. So Daniel grew up, and he's doing well. Well, Carol started back drinking again. And the last, well, two years ago, in 1989, she went through two, de through two detoxes. And September of 89, when she came out, I said, if you drink again, you're out. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I'm putting the checkbook in my name, and you're not writing any more checks. And she said, I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to put you all through any hell. I want to get myself straight. I said, okay. Well, throughout 91, she was feeling distant. And I said, what's going on? I said, you know, you're not close to me. You don't want anything to do. Nothing. And she was going to meetings with this guy. They always going to meetings, and every Friday night they went to Portsmouth to a meeting, supposedly. And she called 1030 in between meetings to find out how things were going. And I'd go to, I was going to my Friday night meeting in Chesapeake, took the kids with me, and then come back. Well, Friday night, the 1st of December of last year, the 1st of December, went to a Friday night meeting, came home and got a call from this guy's wife. said, you know, your wife and my husband have been having an affair for two years. I said, no. She said, yeah. And he's staying at the Grandview Inn in South Point, and that's where they are right now. I said, no, they're in Ironton. The denial was coming back. I didn't want to believe it. She said, well, I'm just telling you. So I hung up the phone, and Melanie said, what's on, Dad? I said, uh. So I, I didn't want to do it, but I called the Grandview in, and sure enough, he had a room there, and he was there. So I told her, I said, if Mom calls, it was about 10 o'clock, I said, Mom calls, tell her I went to the store. So I got in the car and drove like hell to South Point. Didn't get arrested. I don't know why. I, the police just had to be hiding from me. I got there, and I went to the desk. I said, what room is this man in? They told me. And I got the number. I was seeing red and I went running. I found his car, but I didn't find the room. Apparently, I just wasn't looking good enough. And as I was getting ready to leave that area of the parking lot, the car started up, and he had tinted glasses. So I went over and I pulled the door open, and they were there in the car. And I, I just lost it. Now, a week before, a guy in Huntington had just killed his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend. He pulled them over and blew them both away. I could understand his feelings. She had lied to me for two years saying there wasn't anything going on. And I was here helping with the kids, being supportive, taking care of me. I didn't put a hand on them. I don't know why. God must have been, he must have been there with me. But I just verbally just let it out. I told her, I'm divorcing you. You can have him. As a matter of fact, it was his birthday. 
I said, you can have him. I said, but I'm going for the kids. You haven't been any kind of mother to these kids. You've been using me every Saturday, Friday night. Oh, wait, let me talk. I said, no. I said, don't even try to come home tonight. I went back home. God, I was so angry. I got the kids up. Melanie was 17 at the time. Leanne was 13. And Daniel was five or six. I said, your mother's been having an affair for two years. I'm divorcing her. And I'm going to get custody of y'all. And they just cried. Melanie was so angry. She says, I knew it. I knew she was fooling around. I said, well, I didn't want to see it. I went next door to my, to my neighbor, who's my boss. And this man is very straight-laced. You would never hear a cuss word out of his mouth. He dresses impeccably. I've never seen him dirty. I don't know what it is. He just stays clean. His hair is always perfect. He's very, he's very compulsive, very controlled individual. I went over knocking and said, Mark, can I come in? He said, yeah, he was by himself. I said, I need to talk to you. And I just lost it with him. He let me go. He just let me say whatever I had to say. About 10 minutes later, he said, you feel better? I said, a little better. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to contact an attorney next week. I'm going to take off a couple of days, contact attorney. And what really got me was that was on a Friday. That Sunday, I was supposed to fly out to Panama City, Florida to do an audit. And I was looking forward to getting away for a week. And I had to cancel that. Saturday morning, Carol came home that night, went on to bed. She slept on the couch, I think. The next morning, about 9 o'clock, we were in the living room watching cartoons or something. It was Saturday. And God has put humor in my life when I needed it. The times you least expect it. Leanne, who was 13, says, Dad, we need to rent a film for tonight. I said, oh, what do you want to watch? Sleeping with the Enemy. And she was, she was sincere. I mean, she could have said, pretty woman, you know, sleeping with the Enemy. Carol just looked at me, and I said, now, what do I want to say? I said, no, honey, we're not going to rent it. I said, it's going to be on TV one day next week. And we just let it go. Those three days, that Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday, I took off the first three days next week, I did nothing but pray and work my first three steps. That's all I could do. I couldn't do anything else. I talked to people in the program. I wanted to call her parents and tell them what she had done. I wanted to put in the ADI, National Daily Independent. I wanted to put it up on the Kentucky Farmers Bank so everybody could see. Because I was angry. I wanted revenge. I wanted a pound of flesh and then some. They kept saying, no, that's not your place. I said, wait, someone's got to know about it. They said, you deal with yourself. So I went to more meetings the next couple of weeks, and they allowed me to talk and just feel and work through the anger so I wouldn't bury it like I used to do. Those first three days, like I said, I worked those first three steps. God and I were constant companions. I called, my, I called a lawyer. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, come on in. I put all the credit cards in my name. I had everything changed over to my name. I had put off divorce for two years. I knew there was something wrong with our relationship. I put it off for two years because I was afraid of getting financially screwed, to be very honest with you. And also I figured the kids would suffer. But I realized I had to take care of me. And by taking care of me, I would take care of the kids. I needed a divorce because it was going to do nothing but wreck my mind the rest of my life if I, if I allowed it. And I don't have to allow those kind of things to happen. Carol and I sat down and talked about Thursday of that second week, and we decided we were going to see one attorney. We went to the attorney, sat down, and we agreed on everything. I would get all the bills. She would get the only car we had. I had to, you know, all, the biggest resentment I got out of this thing for a little bit were two things. One is I had to cash in my IRA, which she had cashed hers in the year before and spent it all on whatever, and then I had to pay tax on it. But I had to cash mine in, and she gets a third of it. And I had been putting money in it. 
I get a third and Uncle Sam gets his third. And the other thing was she got part of my retirement, 400 and something dollars a month when I retire, no matter who she marries. But that was okay. She and I sat down, went through every piece of furniture and things we had in the house. And we equally agreed on who was getting what. And we sat down with the attorney and said, you're going to have to pay her $720 a month. I said, okay, that's because she was going to have Daniel and Leanne. Because I, after I got my head clear, I realized the kids needed to be with her right now. And I told her, I said, if I get any reason to believe that you're not taking care of those kids first, then I'm going to court for the kids. I told her that in front of the attorney. Well, we filed for the divorce, and then she moved out at the end of January. But during the time that she was getting ready to move out, she found a place to move to, so she was having people help her fix it up. And then she moved out the last day in January, took the car. I had fortunately found a car. My credit union was already up to the max, and I went to a credit union guy and said, look, I'm going to have to buy a car. Here's what's going. He says, you find what you want. 7,000 is the limit. I went and found this 89 Cutlass Supreme at a used car lot. The guy that owned it is a friend of mine. It had 16,000 miles on it. It had been an estate car. This old lady had it. She died. Kids didn't want it, so they said, sell it. I looked in the blue book. It was $9,500. I was like, I can't afford that. See, let me drive it. It looked brand new inside. The hood, I raised the hood up, looked brand new. The trunk started the plastic in it. Had Michelin tires. He said, now go around and find out how much I should sell this car to you for. I went to the old place and asked, and he said, about 9400 minimum, because of the low mileage. Went to the Ford place, and the Pontiac place, they all told me about the same. I said, I can't afford this car, but I'm going to have to look for another one. So I went back to him, and I said, okay, Bill. So here's what they told me. I said, give me your best shot. $6,800. I could have kissed his feet. I said, now look, you're not giving me a bad deal. He says, look, I'm not going to give you a bad deal. After I got the car, Carol had a resentment. She says, how come you get this car? I said, hey, I'll give it to you. I'll switch cars. I still owed about $5,000 on the other car. And one of the things of divorce was she got the car and I had to keep making the payments. But that's okay because the peace of mind I had was worth anything. It still is. I said, okay. I said, I'll give you the Oldsmobile. I said, here's the keys. She said, is that easy? I said, yeah, you give me the black one back, I'll give you the Oldsmobile. I said, the only thing is, the payments for the Oldsmobile come with it that you have to make. Oh, I can't afford that. I said, then you have a choice. She also wanted $500 extra a month besides the 720 she was going to get. And I said, wait, you know what I make? You've seen my paycheck, and there's usually nothing left over anyway. I said, you're going to get the car that I'm still paying on. You're going to get the brand new washer and dryer we bought from Sears. You're getting this other furniture we're still paying on. I said, now you either let me have them and I'll give you 500 or you take them. So she took those things and I, I, kept make, I had to make the payments. We agreed on everything. She moved out, found herself a job later. I started paying her in March. March 1st, started giving her 360 every two weeks. The divorce hadn't been final, but I thought, well, it should be final real soon. May 18th, the judge signed a divorce order and Carol was working now. Signed divorce order, up my payments to 780 a month. Also said that if she can't get health insurance, then I have to pay for that. $110 extra a month. I'm paying that too. But that's okay. Without this program, I'd have had a big time resentment. I probably would have killed her and the guy that night. But those are okay because those aren't that important to me now. My peace of mind is important. The financial things I can work out, but it's my peace of mind. And as long as I'm okay and I know my kids are okay, that's what's most important to me right now. I prayed for two things when she left the house. My now 18-year-old daughter, Melanie, who decided to stay with me, didn't want anything to do with her. She didn't want to talk to her, didn't want to do anything. 
she had so much resentment because she had lived through all the craziness of Carol and I. I prayed that God would let them become friends again. And secondly, I prayed that her parents, who knew that we were divorcing, would come back and be friends with her because her dad was really hurt because she did a few other things that he really didn't like. And Melanie said, I don't want anything to do with her. I said, look, let me tell you just one thing, a fact of life. I said, family is family. I said, short of murder, I said, you are still, that's still your mother and the only mother you'll ever have. I said, I'm not going to talk bad about her because that's your mother. And I hope someday you and she can become friends. Well, I don't, don't want to do anything with her again. I said, give it time. I had to go on a trip in June, the first week in June, up to Sandstone, Minnesota, and audit. And I had my car, Melanie was driving. I said, you, you can do two things. There's two things I'm going to require you to do to be able to drive this car. One is you don't put more than 150 miles on it in a week. That's like running around the circle for her. I said, but the second thing I, you're going to have to do is call your mother every day and talk to her. Not to the answering machine, but to her. Why? I said, because I want you to. And I, I just came up with that idea. I don't know why, but I did. She said, okay. I said, if you don't, then you don't, you don't drive for a month. So I went to Minnesota, came back. She called Carol every day. Well, Carol started a new job. Melanie went and brought her flowers at her new job. Melanie took her out to eat. Carol has taken Melanie out to eat. I left. I came back for a week, went another week to San Antonio, Texas for a conference, put the same requirement on her. She says, I'm going to call mom every day, I know. And she did. Now they're fairly good friends. My in-laws, I went home in April for the first time in seven and a half years. I hadn't been back to Louisiana, hadn't seen my mother in seven and a half years. She didn't know anything about the divorce. I went home, surprised her, and sat down. I had my two daughters there, my two older kids, and I told her what was going on. I just told her, I said, Carol and I divorced. I said, we just decided we weren't good for each other, and that's all I told her. I said, I, I'm going to require one thing of you. I said, I don't want Carol being bad-mouthed around town because she's got to come back here sometime to see her family, and I don't want to come back and answer questions. And if this, and I know her friends well, and she's got this one lady that might as well be the town talker. You know, every town's got at least one or two of them. You don't even have to look for them. You hear them. I said, if this lady starts any stuff about it, I said, then I'm going directly to her and I'm going to beat her. I said, Carol doesn't need it. I don't need it. My in-laws came up to see us a couple weeks ago. They went to spend some time with Carol. And that's a miracle. I, I can't explain other than that God has his way to work things out. I have so much to be grateful for in this program. I did my fourth step six years to the day after I got in the program. July 4th, Freedom Day. It's ironic, but I did it on that day. And then a week later, I did my fifth step with my sponsor. And I was scared because I didn't want to tell this lady. I felt I was going to embarrass her. I remembered pray. I prayed for it. I prayed about it. Went in, spent five hours. I could see my life in passing, and the people-pleasing really came out. From when I had to realize if I, don't, if I didn't want to get beat, here's what I had to do. And I read a Dale Carnegie book when I was in high school, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that told you to put yourself in other people's minds. And what he was doing was saying, you're not important, they are. So I reversed the process. I made changes. I'm enjoying life. Life is what I make it. There's a saying on our Just One Day at a Time uh, card that says, a man will be as happy as he wants to be. I don't have to rely on other people to make me happy. I don't have to say, well, if my daughter's not feeling good today, then I'm going to have a bad day. It's my choice how good a day I'm going to have. 
and me and my higher power have a relationship that I never thought I could have with God. I've got a different God. This program gave me a God that loves me and is there with me. And a, a couple years later on in the program, I found the, the poem Footprints. And that was me. And I have it inside my book. And I read it to newcomers and I tell them, give it time. I had to earn and learn what I have today and it's too precious to lose. And it's because of the ladies in the program. Because most time where I'm at meetings, it's me and these women. And I'm ever indebted to them, every one of them. And I'm indebted to the AAs because I've gone to AA meetings and heard speakers that have helped me to understand what I can't understand, the other side. And I'm just so grateful for the program and for all the friends I have. They're my best friends. They're people that accept you any way you are and they're there to stand by you. One thing I learned, and I was reading it in a book the other day, and I'll close with this. There's a lot of things I have in my mind that I can't forget. A lot of painful things. You know, you hear the saying, forgive and forget. But you can't forget. But I learned in this program, forgiving is not forgetting. It's letting go of the resentment. And that's what I've learned in this program. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Y'all heard a very spiritual lead this morning. Uh, if you can't believe in God, just look around outside and you can see that God is an artist. Look at the trees, the different colors. So you can call it your higher power or God order directly. Good order directly, yeah. But, uh, I want you to go from here. I want you to uh, be able to come back for the women at 3 o'clock. And uh, I believe that's...